Turn in your Bibles tonight to Psalm 30. Psalm 30. Read in Scripture how Noah found favor in the sight of the Lord. And he was like the only guy on the planet who found favor in the sight of the Lord. I think the next time we hear that phrase or read that phrase is Moses. He found favor in the sight of the Lord. And sometime later, you, you see different people losing favor. Saul would be an example of someone who had favor and then lost it. David found favor and thought he lost it. And he writes about it in his prayer journal which we get to look at. But if you go to Psalm chapter 30, look at verse 7. It says, Lord, by your favor, you have made my mountain strong, stand strong. You hid your face, and I was troubled. The way I memorized this, the way I put it away was... Uh, when you showed me your favor, it made me steady as a mountain. I've seen lots of mountains, and they just look unmovable. There's something so solid about a mountain. He said, but when you hid your face from me, I was troubled within. When I was a little kid, uh, our, the kind of wash machine that we had didn't have a lid on it. It had a couple ringers and uh, had an agitator inside, and I like to get up there and look at the clothes swirling and the suds swirling, and my mom would run them through the ringers and get all the water out. Do you remember, anyone remember those kind of things? Not that long ago, right? <laughs> and uh, that, that thing that cleansed the clothes that moved the, the water, sloshed the material, was called an agitator. And that's the word here. David said, on the inside, I, I was agitated. I was troubled within. You lose the favor of the Lord, or you lose the presence of the Lord, or uh, the face of the Lord. You get a sense that he's, his face isn't for you. It's turned. It's an awful, awful feeling. Seems like the times that I feel like I've lost that. It seems like the agitation happens, and I, I usually try to stop the agitation with something from the refrigerator or put a movie down there and see if that would settle it or uh, put something in there that just kind of try to quiet that down because there's an agitation that happens sometimes when I feel like I've lost the favor of the Lord. David, David knew what the favor of the Lord was. When he, knew, when he had it, he made him, it was, made him steady as a mountain. Look at also up in um, verses 4 and 5. Uh, well, verse 5, he says, For his anger is but for a moment. In his favor, his, it says here, his favor is for life. In his favor is life. In his favor is personal revival. In his favor is a wonderful feeling of being alive. The first time I ever felt the favor of the Lord, it was only for a few seconds. Jesus stepped into my apartment, and I, and, I, and I could never have made this up. I could never have imagined this. 
I knew, I knew my life. I knew what I'd been doing. I had some time to slow down and do some uh, introspection. And, and uh, when Jesus walked in my apartment and he smiled at me, I would never have pictured, I would never have imagined that. I would, I would have rather have imagined him pointing at me and saying, you are not a good man. You're a bad man. But that's not what he did. The way he brought me to himself is that he walked in, he stood behind me, and he smiled at me, and I was not expecting anything like that. Then he invited me to follow him and walk with him. I put my head on my, my desk, and, and I said, Jesus, I, I've messed up my life. I don't, I don't know how to live. I don't know how to, I don't know how to live the Christian life, but if you will walk with me, if you will talk with me, I give you my life. So, three seconds of favor has purchased, you know, 40-some years of, of walking with him and trying to live with him, trying to keep up with him. In his favor is life, and I've experienced that. And then there's times it feels like I lose it, lose that sense of his nearness, a sense of his presence, and... And I become agitated within. And uh, it's, it's been the story of my life. David also wrote in Psalm 5, verse 12, he, he said that God's favor is like a shield. And the way I, I memorize that, the way I put that away, is that his, his favor is like a force field keeps the enemy at bay. I seem to do better when I'm resting in and breathing in, taking in his favor. It acts like a force field against negativity and against uh, even, even self-criticism and, and being hard on myself. I just, I do better. I do better when I'm basking in and resting in and enjoying the favor of God, his acceptance. There's a prophecy over Naphtali in Deuteronomy 33:23 that says that, that he'll be satisfied with favor and full with the blessing of the Lord. I remember reading that. It's, it's in the whole list of these ancient old prophecies over the children of Israel. And it's just one of those rare lines in that whole section. And I remember thinking, that's what I want. That's what I want for my life. I want to be, I want to be satisfied with this favor and full with the blessing of the Lord. Don't you? Doesn't that sound sweet? You can imagine the way people got the favor of the Lord, the way they were accepted by God for thousands of years was by doing everything right. And if you're like me, I'll do nine things right, one thing wrong, and it scrubs the nine. Go right back to starting over again, trying to get trying to earn his favor, trying to get him to like me, trying to get him to come close. God's people for many, many years understood that God's favor was earned. If you can imagine a father coming home from market, starts hollering for the kids to come close and off, off his shoulder, he offloads this great big bag of seed on the kitchen table. And the kids know the drill. The servants, the mom, 
grandma, they all gather around, and he slits that bag open, and the seeds spill out, and they go to counting, counting every seed, because the, uh, the way to get God to bless you and bless your business and keep your home and, and uh, be good to you is that you had to tithe off of everything that you brought into the house, everything that came in your hand, you had to tithe on it, so that, that seed, uh, flax or cumin or mustard seed, whatever it was, would flop onto the table and they'd stand there for hours counting every seed because it couldn't be one less than 10%. And something happens in your heart as you're counting that you resent it. You resent having to do this and this is no way to live and, and I have to do this. The kids hate it. They're grumbling. And so there's something, a flip the switch that happens in your heart where not only do you not want to give them one seed less, less anvils fall out of the sky on your head. Your business is ruined. But you don't want to give them one seed more. If that's the way he is, I'm not going to give him one seed more. So every week it was the same thing of counting off the tithe Try to get God's acceptance, get his favor. And that was just one rule, and there's a, a million of them. And you had to keep them all. And if you, got, if you went through your week and you got most of them done, and most of them accomplished, and, and then you failed on one, you either neglected it or forgot it or did it wrong, you're back to scrub again, trying to earn the favor of God. And the people who taught this were the most miserable people. They were the Pharisees. They were the, <clears throat> the keeper of the law, the people of light, people of the word. And they look, they look sour. They look mean. There's nothing, nothing about their job that anybody wanted or anybody envied. You never saw a happy rabbi. All you saw was people under condemnation spewing condemnation. You'll never make it. You're no good. You'll never add up. You can't. You, you did this wrong. You did this wrong. Go back and do it all over again. If imagine if that's what's coming out of, out of their mouth. Imagine what's playing on the inside of constant condemnation. Then one day, a new rabbi came to town, and he was a smiling rabbi, and he was so different and so attractive and so free and so light. Children were so attracted to him, they just loved climbing all over him, and he let them. And parents wanted him to lay hands on, his ki on their kids and bless them, and, and other people would get angry with that, and Sinners were attracted to him. There's just something about him that you just wanted to be with him. And when he looked at you, when he looked at you, his eyes, his eyes didn't have any condemnation. It was like he found something approving, something good, and would comment on it and draw it out and made you want to live better. Stopped under a tree where the worst 
tax collector was, had shuttled up in the tree and was watching him, the parade go by, and Jesus was at the center, and he called him by name and said, I'm, I'm coming to your house for lunch. And it must have been a buzz. Can you imagine all the people saying, doesn't he know that guy's a crook? Doesn't he know he robs us every which way? Doesn't he know he works for the government? Doesn't he know? It seems like he didn't know. It seems like he wanted to be in the guy's house. And Jesus is there, and there's no sermonizing. There's no condemnation. condemnation. There's no, hey, if you did this, this is what will happen. There was nothing. He just looked at him and loved them up one side, down the other, ate his food, talked with him. Who knows what they talked about? But Zacchaeus stepped out into another room. And sometime later came back in and said something, pronounced something that no one could have possibly expected. He said, I, I've decided, I've decided to give away, give back the money that I've been taking from people unjustly. I'll give it back to everyone I can and, and the stuff I can't figure out, the stuff that I don't know where I got it from. I'm just going to give it all to the poor. And Jesus looked at him and says, Zacchaeus, this day salvation has come to your house. Salvation. Can you imagine, can you imagine, that guy must have felt like nine feet tall. Imagine, imagine waking up the next day as Zacchaeus and you just feel brand new. You feel alive. Favor came to your house. Favor came through the words and through the eyes of Jesus through his manner of speaking. There is no one like Jesus. And it made the legalists, it made the people, the rule keepers, the people who are on to every little thing, they tracked him, they're on to, they watched everything he did. They even tried to set him up, and he just navigates the whole thing so merciful. He just goes through it all. They can't get their hooks in him, and that makes them even madder. And it doesn't seem, they just, they don't understand it. It seems like he doesn't even care about the rules and, and all the, all the hand washing and the different things for the Sabbath. It just seems like he doesn't really care, but he loves God. He talks about God. He calls him Father. Nobody calls God Father. And Jesus just walked differently. And he spoke differently. And he did things that were not allowed a leper came skidding in on his knees in front of Jesus and said, I know you can heal me if you want to. And Jesus says, I want to. And touched him. Touched the leper. Nobody had ever touched the leper. Can you imagine that guy not being able to get a job? Maybe, maybe uh, children when he was well. He, maybe he had kids and, and now his wife or the older kids hold the little ones up so he can see them across the fence because he's totally cut off from society. And Jesus touches him. Changes everything. And what Jesus is proclaiming isn't just through sermonizing. It's not just through words. But he's proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. And a year is not 12 months. A year is a whole new era, a whole new period that had never existed before. And at every turn, he's just proclaiming, 
<clears throat> he's going cross-thread everything the legalists are saying. And he's proclaiming, God accepts you now, not based on what you do. You can't do enough. You can't get it right. So he's just decided. He's just decided he wants you. He wants you. And there's something that he knows. He knows when you feel wanted and you're drawn in through acceptance that you want to obey and you want to keep the law and you want to do what's right out of a desire because you want to please the one who accepts you. And Jesus proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord. He actually was quoting Isaiah, but it's, Luke captured it. Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. He, he gives this mandate why he's there, what he's doing to open blind eyes and preach the gospel to the poor. It's all the priorities of God. But one line, one line changes everything. He says, I'm here. My mission, my, my mandate, what God has sent me to do is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Something just opened. Something just changed. And it changes with me. And that is that God will accept you now. Not because you do everything right. But because he's, he wants you. He wants you to have and hold. He wants you to be his. And if it was left to you of getting everything right, it would never happen. So he just decided, I'm going to set all that aside and I'm going to accept them. Knowing that it makes their hearts flip, it makes their hearts do somersault, it makes us want to live up to that acceptance. And Jesus proclaimed it. He wasn't soft on sin. He wasn't a compromiser. They accused him of that. But he was strict on those things. But when it comes to ordinary people who are trying to make their way to God, boy, he showed acceptance. He communicated the heart of God. He was writing the image of God. The, the image of God was so bad that people just thought God was a mean, stingy old man who would line everybody up in the, in the shadow of some tower downtown Jerusalem and then push it on them because they're the worst sinners in town. That, that was what, that's what the headlines were saying. And Jesus just came and he just was constantly rewriting people's image and saying he's just not that way. That's not him. That's not his heart. That's not who he is. Now turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians. Paul, being a Pharisee, being among that group, growing up among that group, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, he understood that whole rule-keeping. He said, boy, when it comes to, comes to rule-keeping, nobody did it better. I, I, uh, as far as keeping the rules, I was perfect. blameless. You couldn't find fault with anything that I had done. He was a master at it. But even though he's a master at it, there's something on the inside of him that is troubled, constantly troubled. In fact, he's angry. He's livid. And he's lashing out. He's doing things in anger that don't make sense. And then he meets Jesus. And Jesus 
even though the guy has gotten people to blasphemy. He's busted down church doors and dragged dads to prison and kids are crying and moms are upset and, and uh, sometimes the dads don't come back home. And he gets them to blasphemy. He tortures them until they say bad things about Jesus. And when Jesus finally stops them, rather than damning him, all the language, everything that Jesus showed him was just an incredible favor, incredible acceptance. In fact, when he got to the street called Strait in Damascus and he was tucked away for three days, he couldn't eat couldn't drink. He couldn't see, so he's in total darkness. Can you imagine what was going on in his mind for three days? Every waking moment, every waking moment, he knew all the rules. He knew all the prophets. He knew all the prophecies. He knew every, every dot of the law. He knew every aspect of it. Thank you, Joel. Appreciate that. He knew it all. Knew it in a way that few people did. And yet somehow Jesus was accepting him in spite of all of that, in, in separate from all of that, beyond all of that. When Jesus speaks and when he spoke on the road to Damascus, he would have felt love rever rever reverberating through his being. He would have felt beloved of God. I think those three days and three nights, his mind was just going up one verse and down another. And got to a place that when Ananias went in, he could touch him and said, Jesus sent me to heal you, to give you your sight. And he received the Holy Spirit. You're a special minister of his, a special messenger of his. Prophesied to him. And Saul just became another man. What was the big difference? The difference was the favor of the Lord. How did it come? Was it by doing everything right? No. It came because of the acceptable year of the Lord, a whole new period. And that year has not ceased. You're, this is still the acceptable year of the Lord. Nothing has changed. Those of us have come out of trying to, trying to get everything right so that God would have any acceptance or favor of us. We know the agitation. We know the troubling of our hearts. There's something about us by faith just accepting his acceptance. I remember, I remember as a Christian trying to do all the, trying to do all the things, uh, making sure my devotional life was perfect and trying to do it all. And I remember finding myself praying this prayer. I said, Lord, I know you love me. You have to. For you to stop loving me, you would have to stop being God. But do you like me? <laughs> But do you like me? I couldn't picture him liking me. Because I wasn't getting everything right. That liking me is what I call the acceptable year of the Lord. Here's what Paul wrote about it years later. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 1, we then, as workers together with him, 
also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. He's quoting, quoting scripture. In an acceptable time, that's a period, a, a day, an era, in an acceptable time, I have heard you. In the day of salvation, I've helped you. Well, how, how many need help from Jesus? How many need help from the Lord? That's part of this day of salvation. When is the day of salvation? When did that take place? Was it just on the the day that Jesus was crucified? Look what Paul says. He keeps writing. He says, behold, look it. That's what that means, look it. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. As long as it's called today, it's the day of salvation. As long as it's called today. Today, today is the day of salvation. Today is the accepted time. Today is the acceptable year of the Lord. It hasn't changed. If you can even let that into your heart just a little bit this week, even tonight, just let it into your heart. Even when you go home and you tuck yourself in and you lay there and you say, Lord, I, I, let, you, I let you accept me. I take your favor to my heart. Not because I've done everything right, but because you've done everything right. You've chosen. You've chosen a day of salvation. Sometime in, sometime in early, uh, probably late October, early November, Jesus walked in my apartment in 1978. For me, that was a day of salvation. But today, as I wake up this morning, I woke up, it's, it's the day of salvation again. Nothing has changed. And, and five years from now when I wake up, it'll be the day of salvation. Or it's, it's, As long as it's called today, it's the day of salvation. It's the day when God will help you. God will heal you. God will protect you. God will provide for you. Not based on you doing everything right. Not based on, on you cutting open a bag of seed and tithing perfectly. But based on the fact that he chose to overlook all the requirements and he decided to accept you as you are, to accept you knowing that that acceptance will cause you to want to live differently. It's not a case for you just take his acceptance and then just live any way you want to live. That'll never, that'll never satisfy your heart either. It's like a, it's like a, a tightrope walker I remember seeing one one time when I was a kid. They walk up this pole to get under a big tent. And it's like a, it's like a, a, a framed ladder that they would climb up and it goes on and on and up, up and up and up. And they have a big crossbar that they're carrying. But the width of my wrist, they cross this rope and they have to get to the other side. And it thrills the crowd to see someone doing something like that. I had a belief system at one time that believed God wanted me to be a tightrope walker, but there was no net. That if I fell, that was it. 
I, I lived among a people who are so legalistic, they, they just believed, oh, if you fall, that's it. There's no net. <laughs> and then I got among a people who believed there was a net, and when they would fall in the net, they would just lay there. And they wouldn't walk the narrow walk. They wouldn't make the effort. They would just lay in the net. They just said, I'm, I'm safe. I'm secure. I don't have to do anything risky. I don't have to walk any narrow, narrow walk. Well, that's not satisfying either. The thrill, the thrill is walking that walk. The thrill is to try and to do the things that you know please the Father. But we know that a righteous man falls seven times. But the difference is he gets up again. He gets up and he walks in it and he tries. The, the, the most satisfying thing is making the effort of walking that narrow walk. But thank God for the net. Thank God for everlasting arms. But I don't want to just lay in some net. I want to keep walking. I want to keep trying. I want to do the things that are challenging. Do the things that I know please him. Do I get it right every time? No, there's a net. Thank God there's a net. But I don't want to just lay there. I want to keep trying, don't you? Is that your heart? What's today? Today is the day of salvation. Someone shout hallelujah. hallelujah. Today is the day of salvation. No different than it was for me in 1978. No different for you in 1984 2004, no different. This is the day of salvation. In other words, we draw salvation. We draw healing, deliverance, help, rescue, everything we need from the Savior, everything that we need that's wrapped up in salvation. We, we draw from that not because we've done everything right, but because he chose to accept us on his terms, which is that we simply do it by faith. We're walking this thing out by faith. We're sincere. We're trying, but we just don't always get it right. I remember my kids when they were little, they're learning to walk, and they'd fall. I didn't, I didn't kick them in the butt and say, why did you fall? What's wrong with you? I was just thrilled that they tried. I was just thrilled that they were trying to do it. And then they would get up again, and I just would applaud that, and fall again, and I would applaud that. I just, I just was so happy that they were trying. Today is the acceptable year of the Lord for you. You can't earn it. At, in, your, in your best day, in your best day, it's not enough to earn one, one moment of his salvation. And so there's something that he just says, look at, he says, just take it, take it. It'll make you steady as a mountain. It'll satisfy your heart. It'll make you come up. You're not robbing God. You're not robbing God by taking his accept, acceptance to heart. You're not robbing him. You'll do better. You'll live better. You'll tithe differently. Everything, everything you do will be differently, just like Jesus navigated it differently. Amen? This is such an old-fashioned message. Are you okay with it? 
I needed to hear it myself. I've preached myself happy here tonight. Grant, why don't you come on up and, and finish it out with whatever's on your heart. Grant, uh, by the way, Grant's, um, Grant's in charge of the tent ministry. So you're sitting under his labor. When we first brought a borrowed tent down from Lavo, we brought a borrowed tent. And uh, we needed a little guy to run up and lace it all up together. And someone to run up the, the steep roof of the temp, Trent tent. Grant was the guy. And so he's still running up on these tent roofs. And so glad for that. And so appreciate you. Have fun. Thank you, Ben. All right. Good evening, everyone. Um, let's start with prayer because <clears throat> I'm really grateful to be here in this tent. This has been just an awesome part of, of my year. Like whenever we get to camp meetings, it's like, okay, yes, this is, this is time, a time of refreshing, time of coming back to just what it means to be, uh, to be with Jesus, what it means to be a passionate believer in Jesus Christ. So let's Let's just be grateful for where we're at right here before the Lord. Holy Spirit, first and foremost, we thank you that you're here. Thank you that you're in this tent on day one. And we don't have to strive and, um, and make everything perfect for you to come, but you're just here because our hearts are open, our hearts are ready for you. So thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here. God, thank you that we're here. Thank you that we get to be here, that in, in this age, in this era, 2021, that we get to be with Jesus. So Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just come tonight and throughout the rest of this week in a way that, that changes the way that we live, that changes the way that we see you, the way that we see each other, the way that we see the church. We just invite you to come in an awesome way and speak to us. We bless you, God. Amen. So what I want to talk about, this is going to be real short, but we want to do a ministry time too, and I know that there's a campfire, and I'm excited about that as well. But we want to do a ministry time, um, and this is about commitment. Let's talk about commitment. Commitment's a big thing to the Lord. Um, commitment's a big thing to us. We see it in our relationships, in our marriages, in business, um, in church things. Just in, in all levels of leadership, commitment is a really big deal. And it's something that's been particularly on my mind a lot because two weeks ago I got engaged. Thanks. And my lovely bride-to-be is over here. Her name is Egg. And it's just been a really, really fun season of life. Um, and, you know, just, just learning how to do commitment. And so do you mind if I just share some of the things that I'm learning about? regarding commitment and how we can then apply that to not just our marriages and our marriages that will, will happen, but also to our relationship with the Lord because that's, that's the root of it. So there are four key points that I want to point out um, about commitment. And you can write these down if you want to. I'll, I'll list them all off now, but I want to dig, in, dig into them a bit. In, in, in a little bit. So commitment always involves sacrifice or risk. That's number one. Number two, commitment requires counting the cost. 
Number three, commitment requires discernment. And number four, commitment ascribes value. Commitment gives value. And so let's start by looking at how Jesus does commitment because he's the one who, who just really has, he, he's, he's the one that we follow. He's the one who we pursue. Let's look at how he does commitment, how he did commitment. Um, so if you want to pull up the screen, I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 9 and verse 21, and we'll read a chunk of this. And this is a point in Jesus' ministry where things have picked up momentum. He started his ministry, and um, he has an awesome, awesome group of disciples who are just passionate about what uh, Jesus, the Son of God, they recognize him as the Son of God, and they're like, man, what, what could happen? Like, think, think of them thinking long-term. Okay, Jesus is here. We believe he's the Son of God, and we believe in just the scriptures uh, that, that talk about him, um, about reigning, like coming and establishing uh, his reign here on the earth. And, and these verses made them question, made them think really differently. So Luke chapter 9 and verse 21 says, And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. He's like, all right, this is about to happen. And it just must have just been such a mind bender for, for these disciples who are seeing healings happen, who are sitting before teaching that they've never heard before, who are experiencing the love that Penn was talking about, the grace that Penn was talking about, that just is so far beyond what they understood. And here he says, I'm about to be killed. And I'm going to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes. But let's look at 20, verse 23. And this is, where, this is where his disciples come in. This is where we come in. It says, then he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever, desire, whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. What I want to explain in this, this like that, I feel like that, uh, that sequence is extremely important because Jesus is saying in 21 and 22 that I'm about to commit. He's saying just forthright, I'm about to commit and I'm about to sacrifice. And this is going to be painful for you. It's going to be painful for me, but I'm going to commit because I care about what I'm, like, I have value. I give value to what I'm committing towards and what I'm sacrificing towards and who I'm sacrificing for. He lays out what he's going to do on the cross. And looking back, we see what, what he did and the, the price that he paid on our behalf for generations and generations so that we can walk in the grace. But then in 23, he invites us into commitment as well. And that's the reciprocation of commitment. If you desire, deny yourself and come after me. And I feel like these verses um, can easily be used to, you know, beat people over the head and say, oh, you just need to deny yourself. Just get over yourself and um, you just got to take up your cross. Just grind it out. Pull up, like, 
pull, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And that's not what Jesus is explaining here. He's saying, I've committed everything so that you could experience relationship with me. And that can only happen if you reciprocate that commitment to me. Here's how to do it. You take up your cross daily. You look aside from yourself and choose to follow me. So that's a big deal. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that just shows again how uh, Jesus, before we could ever respond to him, he chose us. Before we could ever commit to him, he committed to us. Before we could ever risk, risk is a, is a fun word in the kingdom. Before we could ever risk, he risked everything on our behalf so that we could experience him. And it just shows the love and the sacrifice that he poured out on our behalf. So let's go to that list of four things. Actually, I'm gonna add a fifth, reciprocation. Commitment requires reciprocation, just us responding to that. And like with my relationship with Egg, that has to be reciprocated. In a, in a marriage relationship, you need both sides to, to say yes to commitment. Otherwise, it's not real commitment. Otherwise, it's just, it's just trying to do something, trying to fake it. But it's the reciprocation that makes it real. So uh, going after verse one, commitment, or number one, commitment always involves sacrifice and risk. There's a lot of risk involved in commitment. Commitment to the Lord and commitment in relationship um, and, but that's what gives it value. That's really what, what lays the groundwork for, for connection that matters with the Lord. Um, so yeah, and then number two is commitment requires counting the cost. Um, so like sitting down and thinking, okay, this is going to cost me something. Am I, am I willing to risk what this could cost me? That's really what, what it looks like to, to count the cost. And so here's a fun example of that in my own life. I, I love motorcycles. I ride a motorcycle just about every day during the summer, and I love them. But I, I've literally sat down before and been like, huh, this is, this is putting my life in danger. <laughs> like there is risk involved in me hopping on two wheels and flying down the road. Um, and I'm sure that mom has counted the cost too. <laughs> But there's, there's real, like, that's the legitimate risk. It's, it's a risk that's greater than being in four wheels. But still, I ride on two wheels as much as I can. And it's because I've counted the cost and been like, okay, accepting the, this risk is worth it to me. It's worth, for the, for the enjoyment that it adds to my life, for the value that it adds, adds to my life, riding a motorcycle is worth it. Even though... I might die, you know what I mean? Even though I have a greater risk of death, it's worth it. But how many times have we gone through, through this mental calculation as well? It's, it's a commitment. When you choose to commit to someone in a marriage relationship, you're, you're, you're sitting down and thinking, okay, like, what if, what if she's different than what I see on the outside? Or what if he just has this one thing that drives me crazy? that I haven't seen yet. You know what I mean? We, we have to go through these things. And there is risk in commitment every single time. And the greater the commitment, the greater the risk. So let's bring this back to our relationship with the Lord. Ask yourself this question. Why are you in this tent tonight? 
why did you come to these meetings? And what I see at the root of that, like to answer that question, it's because you believe in someone, a God, who, you, who created you, but whom you've never seen with your own eyes, but you believe who loves you. You believe in something that you haven't seen. That's the root of faith. It's the substance of things hoped for. We haven't seen God, but we hope for him. We hope after him. And so, like, have you counted the cost, really sat down and counted the cost of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because what that looks like is being really honest. Like, like what if I'm believing the wrong thing? Have you ever thought about that? Like, in regards to spirituality, in regards to relationship with the Lord, like, what if I've got it wrong? And just forget about the billion plus people who believe in, who believe in God. Just, like, what if I've missed it? And that's the real possibility. But I've taken the risk. And by being in this tent, I believe you have too. And if you haven't taken the risk of believing in someone who, who, who you haven't seen yet, then it's time to do that, I believe. Because he has shown himself to me and to you guys in so many different ways. We have testimonies of the ways that the Lord has showed up. And I believe his word that, 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 that says that he, he loves us, that before we were born, he died for us. And it's through this that he demonstrates his love. So that's commitment. God made the first commitment when he said, I, I'm, I'm after you. I'm after you first. When he sent his son. And then we get to reciprocate this commitment by being like, okay, I'm all in for the rest of my life. For the rest of my life. All right, number three on the list, uh, commitment requires discernment. So remember that part of the verse that I mentioned before, if he gains the whole world but loses his soul, what profit is it to him? Um... If you're pursuing gaining the whole world, it means you're, you're committed to the wrong thing. Being committed to the wrong thing is a real possibility. And it's, it's really easy to do these days, to, to lay commitment, I don't care what it is, in, whether it be in a relationship, in finances, um, in just your core belief system. It's so easy to lay your belief in the wrong thing. But there's discernment that the Holy Spirit gives us. He's our helper, and he helps us bring discernment. Um, for, for many of us, we've, we've walked through spiritual, like just the, the, the process of making our spirituality our own, right? Personal, okay? Maybe it was mom and dad's. Now, I want to make it my own. Or if you don't have that experience, like you come from a secular family, it's like, okay, what, what do I believe? What do I believe? It's asking that question. And I believe in Holy Spirit who can lead us into just discerning what, uh, what to believe and how to believe it. But yeah, what you give your attention to, you're giving your life to, it's commitment. It's commitment. And Jesus went through that same mental calculation. Like he had to discern as well, okay, what's the Father's, what's the Father's will? My, my goal, Jesus said, is to do the Father's will. I need to find that. Let's pursue that. Number four, commitment ascribes value. Listen to this. You are worth, in, in the Father's eyes, you are worth the price of Jesus, the life of Jesus. That's what the word of God says. 
And so if, if Jesus was, if the Father was willing to sacrifice Jesus on behalf of us, then what, what kind of value does that give to you? And that's not just, I, I believe that that, that that value is not just cooped up in those who have lived the perfect Christian life and who have, you know, been the good people. I believe that that value is, is wrapped up in the, in the most broken, in the most broken people, in the, the hardest past. Like that is waiting, that value that the Lord has given is, is not just for, for those who have it all together, but the Lord has value, has given value, has spoken value over everyone. And that matters. There's value in each other, even though the world so often says differently. And then the fifth thing that I wanted to bring out, like I said, was that um, commitment requires reciprocation. It requires being, being forthright and honest with the Lord that, okay, I'm willing to commit. I'm, com- I'm willing to commit to doing this life with you, Father, with you, Abba.